I decided a few months ago, Kevin's our senior pastor, that we were going to do this series for Lent called Lessons from the Carpenter. And that each week we would intentionally preach about Jesus looking through the lens of his trade, which was a carpenter, just like his father was a carpenter. And I started to kind of really try and think and reflect on how we could lean into that even more here in the gathering. And it led me to call uh, Chris Dixon, who's sitting here with us. And I've, I've been joking, but it's so true that I picked up the phone and I called Chris and I said to him, the one thing that you never want your pastor to call you and say to you, which is I have an idea. Right? I mean, don't you never want your pastor to call you and say that? And Chris completely took the idea and, and ran with it. So that was Chris in the video in his wood shop making the cross that we have up here on the stage with us. So this cross is going to live on the stage with us on a stand just as, as hopefully a way for us to maybe lean in a little bit more into the fact that this was what Jesus did for his trade. And then at the end of Lent, hopefully before Easter... We're going to take this and put it on the wall in the back of the space above the projector. So my hope is that not only would this be something that would allow us to hopefully experience this season of Lent in a deeper way, but also that it would be able to live in this space and be a permanent reminder not only of this specific journey that we've made to the cross, but the fact that, that this is the symbol of our faith, right? That this is ultimately what Jesus was willing to bear for us and for our sake. And just to brag on Chris, right? I mean, one of my absolutely favorite things is to watch people who are willing to use their gifts and graces to enrich the life of the church and to lead people deeper into their faith. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to come up after the service and just take a look at how beautiful this thing is. I'm going to warn you, the stand is a little wobbly. Uh, it's not going to fall over, don't worry, but I wouldn't come up and like, push it hard, right? Because if you did that, it just might. And that would be really tragic and we don't want that to happen. But please do, please do come up and look at it and admire it and maybe touch it and feel it and just allow yourself to go just a little bit deeper with this theme that we're going to carry throughout the season of Lent. I want us to read our scripture this morning and then we'll jump into the sermon. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 verses one through six. Hear it now. He left that place and came to his home town, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Jesus, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, has really done a lot. 
He has been baptized that moment where he comes up out of the river Jordan and we hear the voice of God and the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. He's been tempted in the desert by Satan. He's called his first disciples. He's healed a man with an unclean spirit. He's begun preaching and teaching around Galilee. He's cleansed a leper. He's told some parables. He's stilled a storm. He's even brought a 12-year-old girl back to life, all in the first six chapters of Mark. From raising that 12-year-old girl back to life, he makes his way back to his hometown of Nazareth to continue his ministry and to continue his teaching. So he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach on the Sabbath and he is immediately met with skepticism. A skepticism that seems to be intended to tear him down, right? This moment with Jesus in his hometown made me think about the first sermon that I had ever preached in my, uh, in my hometown. I, I offered lessons and talks as a high schooler when I was growing up in the church, but my first ever sermon on a Sunday morning in front of adults and not just in front of youth happened at my home church in my hometown, Trinity United Methodist Church down in in Homewood. It was my senior year of college. I had decided that I wanted to go to seminary and and that I wanted to work towards becoming a pastor and ordination and, and all of those things. And my pastor at that time decided that it would be a good idea to let me actually get a rep, right? To let me actually preach. And I was so Nervous! Oh my gosh, I was so nervous. And I was preaching on like the easiest scripture ever. I picked Daniel and the lion's den. I mean, is there an easier scripture to preach on than Daniel and the lion's den? And I worked so hard on that sermon. I mean, I found out that I was going to preach it like two months out. So I had two months to wrestle with it and to write it and to mold it and to craft it and to change it and to practice it. I mean, I was just obsessing over the sermon. And I remember how powerful it was for me to stand up in that church and to look out at all of those people who had seen me at my best and seen me at my worst over the course of my life. These were the people who had helped me make sense of my call to ministry. They had gone on mission trips with me. They had encouraged me and laughed with me and poured into me and and shown up for me. And and for me and my ministry and my call at that moment, it really felt like a full circle moment for me. This was before everything was was live streamed, but I was pretty sure that I still had a recording of it saved on like my old iTunes account. You remember when all of our music used to be on iTunes? And I did. I was right. I found it this week. I had to open up my old computer and boot it back up, but I found it and I listened to it. And it was like nails on a chalkboard to go back and listen to it. And I'll give myself like a... I want to say a C minus. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but I'd give myself a C minus. But for some reason, reading about Jesus going back to his hometown and that culmination of events, it took me straight back to that moment. All of the nerves that I felt looking out at people, knowing that they know you, they they really know you. And I was met with encouragement. Jesus, not so much. Jesus doesn't have the same experience that I had when I got the chance to preach in my hometown. 
And if I'm being honest with you, if I was met with the same welcome that Jesus was met with when he went to his hometown, I don't think that I would have made it to seminary. Jesus, who has already proven himself as a healer and a teacher and a redeemer, he goes home to minister to the people that he loves the most, and he is met with rejection. Hear it again. Where did this man get all of this? Where is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. Who does Jesus think he is coming back here to us and using all of these big words? We know that he hasn't had a formal education. He's acting like he should be telling us how we ought to be living, talking to us like he has something to teach us. Does he expect us to believe that he's actually a prophet now? He's acting like we don't know, but we, we do know. We know who he is. Is not this the carpenter? We usually talk about around Christmas time that Jesus' father Joseph was a tecton, which is the Greek word for builder or for carpenter. But so often we don't talk about Jesus using that same lens. And, and I think by doing so, we, we miss a valuable lens that, that we can look through and see and better understand Jesus and his ministry. Jesus would have probably begun formal training with his father between the ages of 13 and 15. Meaning that he most likely would have had around 15 years of experience working as a carpenter before he began his public ministry. Which, I, which means, you know, when I think about that, 15 years, it makes it hard for me to believe that his trade wouldn't have deeply impacted who he was as a person. I think he would have looked at the world like a carpenter looks at the world. I think he would have looked at people like a carpenter looks at people. I think he would have approached ministry like a carpenter approaches ministry because that was who he was. And and we're going to get more into this during this season of Lent, but I think there was a reason that Jesus was a carpenter and nothing else. If you came to that book study this morning and on Sundays, during Sunday School Hour in the Fellowship Hall that me and Kevin are leading, then some of this is going to be a little bit repetitive. But I want you to hear it again if you've heard it already because I, it really made it clear to me why we should be leaning into the fact that of all things, Jesus was a carpenter. Because if you think back along Jesus' teachings, he uses other trades as examples for how we can understand him and his work and the call of discipleship and evangelism. But none of them really fit like a carpenter does. A first century fisherman would have gathered fish, but he didn't actually love the fish. They were just a commodity, right? A first century shepherd would have cared for and protected the sheep. He would have called them by name, but he only did those things for the wool and for the meat that they had to offer. A first century farmer would have planted it and brought life from the seed, which I do think is the closest fit. But more than likely, that life that was brought from the seed would only have lasted for a season. 
before it began to wither and fade. A first century carpenter would have had two primary tasks that their days would be filled with. They would build and repair. They would build tables and chairs and yokes for oxen and doors and tools and wheels and all sorts of other stuff, I'm sure. All of them built to last. Built to last for for generations. And then they would constantly be repairing. Making new what was broken. Redeeming what was worn out. Renewing what was in desperate need of new life. And both the work of building and repairing for a first century carpenter would have been overshadowed by the reality of the wood supply in the first century. And that was that it was extremely scarce. Plain and simple, due to generations of war, lumber was just just really hard to come by. Cypress and cedar grew in the north, but they were really expensive to acquire. Oak and ash would have been available locally, but really only in very small amounts. There were plenty of olive trees, but they usually grew with a gnarled and twisted trunk, so they were no good for use for a carpenter. In first century Israel, plain and simple, tall, straight, sturdy timber was really hard to come by. Which meant that a carpenter not only had to build and repair, but they had to be extremely resourceful as well. Because of that, a carpenter couldn't afford to waste a scrap. A carpenter had to be innovative and creative. A, a carpenter would have to, see, have to see purpose in a piece of wood that an untrained eye might readily discard and see as useless. I think we see this in a really cool way by looking at a boat that Trey's going to throw up on the screen that was discovered in 1986. This is the remains of a boat that was discovered on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they date it to the first century. They specifically date it to around 20 or 30 A.D., which is right around the time that Jesus lived. The boat is roughly 27 feet long. It's eight feet wide. It's a boat that would have probably been able to carry around 15 people. And I'd encourage you to look it up. If you Google the Jesus boat, it's going to pull up a story about this boat. But it took them 11 days of around-the-clock work to fully excavate it from where they found it buried. And obviously, right, other than the dating of it to the first century, there's nothing to actually connect it to Jesus and his disciples in his ministry. But it does give us a pretty clear glimpse at the type and style of boat that Jesus would have most likely been in when he calmed the storm or when he walked on water or the boat that he would have called his fishermen disciples out of to come and follow him because this was the style boat that was most typically used for transportation and for and for fishing. And there's always a chance, right, that Jesus found himself in this boat exactly. But regardless, for us this morning, I think more than all of that, this is a boat that was made by a first century carpenter. When they started to inspect the boat after they had it preserved, they found that it includes over 10 different types of wood. Now, most of the planking was used, cedar planks were used to make the bottom of it, but All of the boat encompassed, I mean, isn't that crazy? Over 10 different types of wood. 
They also found evidence of several repeated repairs that had been made to the boat, which leads them to believe that this boat was probably in use for several decades, if not close to a century, always finding the hands of a carpenter who were willing to spend the time to fix it. This boat, to me, reflects the care and the creativity and the resourcefulness of a first-century carpenter. Clearly, it was built to last, including 10 different types of wood, which just screams to me that this person, whoever was repairing it, was more than willing to use the scraps, to use whatever it was that he had lying around the floor of his shop, repaired over and over again by patient hands. The more I reflected on Jesus' trade as a carpenter, this week, and the more I really tried to embrace it as a part of, of who he was, the more I saw it written all over his ministry. I mean, think about it. Think about the trade of a carpenter to build and to repair, the need for a first century carpenter to be resourceful, to see value in the scraps, to go for what others might discard or deem as trash or, or useless. And then think about who Jesus called to follow him. A bunch of fishermen and a tax collector. Or who Jesus healed. Folks who were ritually unclean, who had been exiled from religion, lepers and centurions. Think about it. The, the majority of the people who Jesus heals and performs miracles on aren't even notable enough to be named in Scripture. They're just the leper or the bleeding woman, or the paralyzed man. Not to mention how Jesus healed these people. He touched the broken people. It was his touch that made them whole, willing to lay his hands on people who had not been touched for years. All the way down to the images and the illustrations that Jesus uses in his ministry and in his parables. I think Jesus saw people, saw the world, and did ministry like a carpenter from Nazareth. Coming from modest means with a willingness to be resourceful and a keen eye for seeing value and purpose in people that others only saw as the scraps of the world. The question for us this morning that I hope we will be asking ourselves as, as we begin to enter this season of Lent is who will we be? Who are we going to be? Are we going to be like the folks in Jesus' hometown? Back in Nazareth, those Nazarites who hear Jesus teach when he comes back through? Are we going to meet his teachings, the miracles of this carpenter with skepticism? with doubt, with, with disbelief, convinced, right? Con convinced that God surely wouldn't trust such an important task with a carpenter of all people. Are we going to reject or close ourselves off from the lessons that this carpenter has to offer us? Or will we find ourselves in the boat with this carpenter? Trusting the repairs that he has made floating somewhere out in the Sea of Galilee, leaning into every word that he speaks. 
willing to go where he tells us to go, having already dropped our nets and chosen instead to sit at his feet. My hope for me, my my hope for you, my, my hope for us this season of Lent is that we might learn from this carpenter who we know to be the Messiah. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.